Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This is the word of God. If you're new to Metro, um, we've been, since Easter, we've been walking through our what we know as a collection of teachings of Jesus called uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And within this collection of teachings, uh, we get to Matthew chapter 6, and it's one of the few places where Jesus' disciples ask him to teach them how to pray, and so he does. And we see that in Luke chapter 11, and we see it here in Matthew chapter 6. Uh, we decided to craft that into a, a mini-series within the series, the Lord's Prayer. We're going to walk through, for the next, I guess now, five more weeks, uh, the different components of the Lord's Prayer and, and how important it is and how often we misunderstand and misinterpret what it is. Now, um, to hallow, that's, we're talking about hallow be your name today. To hallow something means that we're going to treat it as sacred. It is of ultimate concern, ultimate value in our lives. And Jesus says that when you pray, there's this intimacy with God as your father. There's this deep intimacy. We call that sonship. And you have this great relationship, intimate relationship with your father who is God, who is also in heaven. So he is the king. And once you acknowledge who God is, the first thing you do is you come to him to receive more of him. You want more of God. And that's what we call worship. Worship, praise, adoration, desiring God, to see God, to have access to God. That's the most important thing in my life. That's what we say. See, the Christian life, contrary to maybe how you've grown up, is more than just a set of rules. It's more than just a lifestyle or teachings. It's about access. Access to God, your king, your father, as the ultimate value in your life. So we're going to talk, uh, we're going to say three things about worship today why we need it, what happens when your own worship is distorted, what we mean by that, and then how do you genuinely worship? Why we need it, what happens when your worship is distorted, and how do you genuinely then worship? First, we're going to talk about why we need it, why we need worship. Verse 5, that's not printed in your bulletins. We covered this a couple weeks ago. Jesus says, when you pray, do not pray like the hypocrites, because the prayer life of the hypocrite is inconsistent. The prayer life of a hypocrite is non-existent. In the open, a, a hypocrite is pious. Psalm 95, the psalmist in Psalm 95, he says this. He describes external forms of worship. Mainly what he says is, come and sing. Come and shout, he says. I want you to come before him and extol him. I want you to bow down and kneel before him. I want you to hear him. He calls the people of God to sing and shout, come before, extol, bow down, kneel, hear. Most or all of these things we do in public. But if you stop there, Jesus says, you are a hypocrite. 
If you stop there and in your private life you have an empty relationship with God, which is to say you have no relationship with God, Jesus says that person has already received his reward. Why does he say that in verse 5? Basically because a religious person does not hold God as of ultimate value in your life. Now, a lot of us here, we turn our nose against people that we think are religious. But Jesus describes religiosity as something very different than what we think about when we think of somebody who is religious. He says if you have an empty relationship with God and yet still come to church and act pious, you are a religious person and you are a hypocrite. Because a religious person does not hold God as of ultimate value or highest value in his life. He holds his status as of ultimate value. He holds people's applause in ultimate value. He holds his reputation ultimate value. So when you're praying in public, people will listen to you. They'll hear you. You're getting what you want. You're getting the applause. But in private, you don't pray because there's no applause. We tend to pray when prayer is going to get us what we want. We tend to pray when prayer brings us a step closer to the things that we treasure most. But true prayer is when the thing that you want most from God is God himself. You want to enjoy God. You want to delight in God. You want to adore God. You want to hold God up as ultimate worth in your life, ultimate value in your life. In fact, the very word worship comes from a translation of the word worth-ship. God is being held up as of ultimate value in my life. Even in Psalm 95, even in Psalms like the one we read in our call to worship today, 103, worship is always embedded in preaching to yourself and preaching to others to delight and enjoy God, to adore Him with gratitude. It's always driven by an internal dynamic relationship with God. And if that's the case, whenever you pray, you're going to get what you want. And because you get what you want, and that what you want is God, you're going to continue to pray. You're going to always pray. You're going to pray in public. You're going to pray in private. What you do in secret tells you who your God is. What you do in private tells you what you truly worship. When you're alone, when there's nothing that you actually have to do, and if it's not God, then you're only going to pray when you're in trouble. If it's not God, then you're only going to pray when the thing that you really worship is at stake. And so you're going to be inconsistent. Or your prayer life is going to be non-existent. And in verse 5, Jesus says, you then are a hypocrite. It's very important. And the reason why is because people see you coming to church. People see your morals, your values. And if they do, and if that's so, you may get into certain circles in church. You may get into certain social circles. You may become a leader in the church. You may even get ordained in the church. Lots of people come to church because they're ultimately lonely. They want to be a part of a certain group. In fact, if you look at older immigrant generations, like a lot of us grew up in immigrant-based churches, the church is really every bit as much a cultural center as it was a place of worship. It was a cultural center for immigrants. And so as a result, that's where your language was preserved. That's where your food styles were preserved. Holidays and rituals and, and ceremonies, your education. But if, you'd only, if you don't truly meet God at church, you never really got God. That's how, I mean, how do you know that your faith is for real? It's about what you do in private. When it's between you and God. 
Do you praise God in private? Do you worship God in private? Or do you secretly dream about wealth? Do you secretly plan your future wealth, your earnings? Do you dream about power and roles and titles? Some of us, it's not really about the titles. It's about the influence we have, the connections we make, the buying power we have, the love that we can find. If that's what you secretly dream about, then church is really about externals. And your Christian faith, your Christian life will be powerless. And you're going to say, God has failed me. And you're going to give up on God. You're going to give up on church when really you never came for God in the first place. You never came to God to get God. And you never really got God after all. And so seeing God, the beauty of God, to gaze on his beauty, it's got to be the most important thing in your life. That's why we need it. Now, the second point is then, what happens when our gaze isn't on God? What, ga- what happens when we're, we're not looking at the beauty of God over and over in a way that our heart just explodes into praise? What happens when our worship is distorted? Verses 9 to 13, Jesus begins to set a model for our prayer lives, how to pray. And basically what he says is that prayer is placing, he begins, you know, if you know anything about the Lord's Prayer, we said this a couple weeks ago, that the Lord's Prayer is divided into two halves. The first half is all about God. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And he divides that first half to be the groundwork and the foundation for the second half, which is what? Give us this day our daily bread. In fact, all of our requests and our petitions and our wants are supposed to be framed by thy kingdom come, thy will be done, hallowed be your name. Your name is sacred. You are of ultimate worth in our lives. In fact, even when we pray for forgiveness, even when we pray to be forgiving people, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven those who who have sinned against us. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. How we deal in suffering and in temptation let me be more like you is ultimately the prayer. Even before all those things, praise precedes those petitions. Our profession of the worth of God precedes our confession of our own sinfulness against God. Our wants come after our worship. And it makes sense. Think about this. Because to the degree that you love somebody, to the degree that you adore somebody, that is going to create the extent of the matter how you hurt somebody, how you grieve somebody, which then results in then the degree of how you seek forgiveness and want to be brought back into relationship with somebody. The way you honor somebody is going to serve as a framework for all the ways that you seek and confess, seek forgiveness and confess against the, the wrongs that you've done to somebody. And so if the person that you love the most is the person that you hurt the most, you're going to seek them the most for forgiveness. But that love has to be organic, you see. That love has to be organic. If you say first, if you flip that prayer over and you say, give me what I need, give me what I want, forgive me when I fail, help me to forgive others when they fail me, protect me when I'm in need, and then you follow that with, I love you, and I'll worship you, and I'll obey you, that's a very mechanical relationship. In fact, we call that a transactional relationship. It's not very different from the way you are in business or with your boss, you see? For a child, and God calls us, Jesus calls us to pray our Father as the foundational 
anchor on which we can even pray in the first place. For a child, their love is supposed, their love for their father, their love for their mother is supposed to frame or serve as a foundation for any request that they have. You're never going to ask something of your dad that you're not, that you know your dad doesn't want you to have. You see, it's about relationship. And so your worship and your praise is going to be the context for anything you ask for. Your worship, what you ask for, so your worship is going to frame what you ask for. Worship is what? I value you above anything else in my life. That is going to fill every request you have. It's supposed to dominate your life. If you don't do that, that's why we grumble. That's why sometimes we come to church and there may be a lot of life going around on in your church and yet you feel lifeless. That's why serving in the church often feels like work because for you, that prayer has been flip-flopped. You have, a, you have a relationship with God that has become mechanical. And if it feels that way, it's because it probably is. If you look at God accurately, he is our father. The way Jesus taught us to look at God, he is our father. He is the king of heaven. He is sacred. You are, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. You're going to surrender. You're going to praise him. That is going to frame the way you look at the world in accordance with the praise and acknowledging of, the, of God's kingship and his mission in your life. Then that's going to frame, Lord, I need these things to serve your kingdom, to bring your kingdom come, to bring it here on earth. You've called me to do this, and in order to do this, I need certain things. That's what you're going to ask for. You're going to look at yourself in reference to who God is. You're not going to look at yourself too high. You're not going to look at yourself too low. And it's going to frame your confession. It's why any area that's lacking surrender in your life, any area that's lacking obedience in your life, it's not really an obedience issue. We were taught it's because you are behaving poorly. It is not an obedience issue. It is not a, a, a behavioral issue. It's a worship issue. It's a praise issue because you're worshiping something else. Verse 14 and 15, why do you have trouble forgiving, Jesus says. It's because you view yourself and your own righteousness not in line with the righteousness of God, the beauty of God, and yet God, who is most righteous and most beautiful and most glorifying, and yet glorified, and yet he forgives. That's why we pray, forgive us as we forgive others. Make me more forgiving like you. It's framed by praise. How you confess how you repent is going to be reflective of who you are and what you worship. So either you're going to be filled with tremendous guilt or you're going to be filled with tremendous pride in your prayer. If you're filled with tremendous pride, you're going to say, I don't need to confess. I don't need to repent. It's because you're hallowing something other than God. You don't see the power and the glory and the beauty and the sacredness, the worship of God. In fact, you're hallowing something else more. It's your own image, your own goodness. You feel like that's enough. You know, Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells this story in parable form. It's a parable of a rich man and this man named Lazarus, a poor man named Lazarus. 
And the interesting thing, I'm not going to go into this text. It's, it's probably for another sermon at another time. But the interesting thing about that parable is Lazarus is the only person in any of Jesus' parables in the entire Gospels that actually has a name. He's got a personal name. In other words, God knew Lazarus. He says a certain rich man, but Lazarus has a name. And the interesting thing is Lazarus had nothing else on earth, but he had God. And it was sufficient for him. And after the rich man and the Lazarus both pass away, after they both die, the rich man still prays. He looks to Abraham and he's praying. And when he prays, he's asking for what? Things. I want comfort. Give me relief. And he's grumbling. It's hot down here. And he actually asks Abraham to send Lazarus to relieve him. He still thinks he's in control. That's the extent of his own righteousness in his mind. He still goes to God asking for things because what? Jesus says, we are hallowing ourselves. Greater than what God says about himself and what he says about you. And like that parable, when you don't have a name, when you don't have a relationship with God, when you don't have intimacy with God, you never come to God for God. You only come to him for things. Now, on the flip side, if you're driven by guilt, then you're still driven by something greater than what God says about you and says about himself. Because you refuse to believe that God, this great king, is our father who is forgiving and kind. So what you need to do is you need to unseat these things from that high place that you hold in your heart that's greater than God in your life. Before, and you've got to do that before you go to God with your requests. Now, we're looking at different parts of Scripture here, but in Ezekiel chapter 14, it's, a, it's a, one of the prophetic books in the Old Testament. There's a kind of a, an interesting passage in Ezekiel 14. Ezekiel says this, some of the elders, I'm going to kind of paraphrase for you, he says some of the elders came to God. And what God says is, these men, these elders, they're not just normal people. They are the leaders in the church. He says, these men set up idols in their hearts. They place something higher in their hearts. They place something else other than God in the throne of their hearts. And they placed it in a place that's much more important than God. And as a result, it's a wicked stumbling block before their faces. And God says, should I let these men even ask of me anything at all? In other words, why should I listen to their prayers? Because their prayers are built on the things that they want of me that they treat as more important than me in the first place. Why should I even hear them? Why should I even let them ask? That's what he says. And he uses this phrase, wicked stumbling block. Because if you think about it, what is a wicked stumbling block? A stumbling block, if you put it in front of your eyes, if you put a block, a brick, large enough to cover your face, everything you do is with respect. That's the way you see the world. It's the way you, you walk. So you're going to look to the left, and you're going to look to the right, and you're going to look down, but you'll never be able to see straight. And everything is with, the, with that stumbling block as a re reference point. So you're going to ask for things against what you see. You're going to want things against what you see. And he says it's a stumbling block, meaning that you're constantly tripping and you're falling over things. And yet, all you're thinking about, all you do, all you want is relative to that thing that's in front of your face. God says, then why would I answer your prayers if that's what you're coming to me with? It's a powerful passage. 
right? Why would I come to you and even answer you? Why should I even let you ask of me, he says? Because everything you want is void of your relationship with me. You see? And God says, no, I will not do that. What I will do is answer them. I will answer them in keeping with their great idolatry. In other words, as a result, everything you go through is me trying to address that stumbling block that's in front of you. So if your prayers aren't answered, it's because he's working on you. A lot of us, you know, we think our prayers aren't being answered. God is absent from us when in actuality he's very present. He's actually trying to heal you of the thing that's blinding you and keeping you from seeing straight. You see that? Powerful. And he says, I will do this to recapture your hearts. Our God is an amazing father who wants us to thrive and flourish, he says. We need to be driven by the grace of God in a way that it restores our worship. Think about our petitions, the things that you ask God for. If you scan even the last week, all the things that you ask God for, your wants. What makes you ask, what, I mean, think about it, what actually makes you ask God for anything? I mean, give us this day our daily bread. Daily bread. Bread represents two things in the Old Testament. It represents the things that you need to live, sustenance, combined with the things that make you feel satisfied in life. So mainly when we say is give us this day our daily bread, it's not weekly bread, annual bread. He's not asking for something that's driven by greed. Give me everything that I need to get through the day to serve your kingdom in a missional way, to serve your purpose and your mission in my life. And then I'll be satisfied. And so Jesus says what? I am the bread of life. Right? But the thing is, oftentimes what we say is, I need this woman in my life. Lord, give her to me. What you're really saying is, I need this woman as bread. In other words, I cannot sustain life without her in my life. I won't be satisfied in life without her. When really Jesus is calling us to pray with respect to his mission, let that be the thing in front of your face. Let that be the thing that guides you. Let that be the thing that drives you. Let my glory be the thing that drives you, and then you will be satisfied, and then you will have everything you need. Instead, we're saying, no, I need this. And in the desert, when the Israelites were wandering in the desert, after God rescued them from Egypt, they saw all these amazing wonders and signs, and God rescued them, crossed the Red Sea. They were wandering in the desert for 40 years. They were starving in the desert. God provided them bread daily. And if you tried to hold more, what would happen to it? It would spoil. And that teaches us what? That the, that's the reason why we're so anxious. That's the reason why we're so depressed in our lives. It's because we had been driven by things in front of us that promise satisfaction and only give us anxiety and depression, dissatisfaction. By the way, I'm not saying that I'm not saying that any of the things that you want are bad or wrong. I'm sure there are things that we want that are bad and wrong, but I'm not saying that everything that you want is necessarily a bad thing. It's that you put those things as ultimate things in your life. You are hallowing them. When we have been called to adore God and hallow Him, putting His mission on the forefront, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, it allows you to surrender. 
It allows you to surrender. It calls you to ask God based on what you actually need. Your wisdom is sharpened. What you really need starts to sharpen. It teaches you to trust God. Imagine, a lot of us here have children. Imagine if you take your child uh, to Sesame Place, right? You go to Sesame Place with your children. Now, at Sesame Place, what do they have? They have rides at Sesame Place. They have chicken fingers. I don't know a kid that doesn't like chicken fingers. They like chicken fingers at Sesame Place. They have a water park at Sesame Place. They have toys and playthings at Sesame Place. They have ice cream at Sesame Place. So you have all these things. You take your child and you show him around. He goes, wow, look at that ride. Whoa, water park. Daddy, can I go there? And you go, heck no. I'm just bringing you to show you to make your life miserable because you belong to me. And I'm going to show you all the things that you can't have in your life. I don't care what you ask for. You can't have it. That child will have a distorted view of you. And that child have a distorted view of the world. He won't be able to enjoy the world. He won't be able to enjoy or trust you, you see. And yet that is us towards God, our Father. You say, well, I never said that to God. Think about it. In Genesis chapter 1, go all the way back to the first book of the Bible. God puts Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And Adam and Eve are in the Garden. And he didn't put them there to make them miserable. There he walked with them in the cool of the day. There he enjoyed, they enjoyed intimacy face-to-face with God. And there they're walking in the garden, and God says, you can have anything in this garden except that one fruit from that one tree. Don't eat that fruit. Because if you love me, if you are intimate with me, if that is all you need, you don't need that. So just trust me. You can have anything else here, right? Now what happens? God says, then you will be happy, you will live in glory, you will have beauty, you will experience it, you will have security, you will have intimacy forever. What happens? The serpent, the devil comes and says, look at that tree. Doesn't it look good? Look at that tree. The reason why God is not willing to give you that tree is because he wants you to be miserable. That's why. Because he knows you will be just like him if you take of that tree, and he wants to keep you from that. And so Eve is looking at this tree. And Genesis chapter 3 says it was pleasing to the eye. And it was useful. And she's wondering in her mind, in her heart, why would God withhold something good, something that is meant for good for me? I can't trust him. He's not out for my good. Every time... You are praying for something apart from the mission of God and the character of God in your life that goes beyond trusting God to provide for you in your daily need. That is us saying, I need this apart from you. I can't trust you. I can't trust that you'll provide for me. I can't trust that you want what's good for me. I need this to be happy in my life. You are departing from the presence of God in a sense. You see that? It's just like that child walking through Sesame Place. The father brought him there clearly to enjoy everything, except that there are things that are dangerous there. No, you can't go because it's dangerous. The height limit is here, and you are here. You will die if you go there, right? And the kid says, 
He looks at his dad and he says, well, I can't trust you. You don't know what's good for me. I know what's good for me. You see that? That's us looking at God in the same way. If you praise God, if you trust God, that what he gives you is good, that trust will shape you. That trust will mature you. That trust will strengthen you and empower you. But if you don't, you won't be able to look at anything good in your life that God has given you and praise God for those things because of that wicked stumbling block, that idol in the heart that has taken the place of God in your life. You see that? Friends, the Christian life, more than anything, it's probably most about position. What do I mean by that? It means that more than about what you do for God, it's about where, what position God sits in your heart. Is he king in your life? It's about where you see yourself placed in the heart of God. Because if you see yourself placed so low, it's going to result in a guilt-driven life. If you place yourself above other people, it's going to be a pride-driven life. If the things that you want are in the wrong place in your heart, it's going to create distrust in God and anxiety apart from God. You're going to complain about everything, even the good things in your life. Your job that God has given you. Your church that God has given you. Your spouse that God has given you. Your other friends in your life God has given you. That is the root of jealousy. It is the root of gossip. It is the root of all fighting and arguments, even in the church. So here you have the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is a God-loving, God-fearing man. And yet, he was rooted in anxiety and anger and pride. So much so that when he heard in the synagogues that there was a rising people who were converting to this faith called Christianity, he became murderous and angry to the point where he actually acknowledged and desired to murder people and accepted and actually condoned that murder. And so it's an amazing thing that in Philippians chapter 4, it's in your word of encouragement, that it can say, I've learned what it's to have plenty. He was a Pharisee. He was probably wealthy. He probably had a lot. And he says, I've learned also what it was to, have, to be in need. And yet, I have found contentment. I am content. I can do all things in Christ. The most misinterpreted passage in the Bible in some ways. He says, I've learned the secret of contentment. I can do anything in Christ. We worship because God is worthy. We're built for it. It's why we were created. But it's also something we need to do. And if you do that, it actually starts to heal you. If you learn to worship God, if you learn to adore God, it's going to heal that part of your heart that distrusts God and as a result distorts your view of yourself and, and the, the world around you because you don't get what you want. You know, kids, they're crazy. Kids are crazy. But they're like us. They think, because you won't give me everything I want, at that moment, you're a mean person and a terrible person, and, and you're not for me, and you're not for my good. Let's think about, let's, you know, the kids, they come to you and say, let's do this. And you say, no, we, we can't because you're going to die if you do that, essentially. And so they say, what? Then I don't want to do anything, and I want nothing from you. That's what they say. They're so extreme, and yet that's us. That's our lives. It's not just, it's, it's us. It's, it's just born in them. It's, it's not, they didn't learn that. It's born in them. It's part of our DNA. It's part of our heart towards God ever since the Garden of Eden. 
and only worship, adoration, praise, the restoration of our praise will heal that. It's going to give you a proper perspective on God, a proper perspective on yourself and the world. Otherwise, you have a totally distorted view, and that will have tremendous consequences that will corrode your life and your soul and your relationships and everything around you until ultimately you, your life bursts itself against God. That's what hell is, complete separation from God. You see that? So how do you restore your worship? How do you get there? In verse 9, you have to ascend to two truths. Our pastor last week preached our Father, that's the first truth, in heaven. Our Father means you have to gaze on the fatherly love and the beauty and the mercy and the humility and the sacrifice of a father, our God who is our Father. In heaven means that you have to gaze on the majestic kingliness and beauty of God. Isaiah chapter 6 Isaiah, the prophet, this great orator, probably the greatest orator in his time, he catches a glimpse of the royal train of the beauty of God. That's his glory. That's his kingliness. That's his power. And at the sight of that, and he sees the angels crowding around him and singing, Isaiah drops, pretty much drops to the ground, and he says, Woe is me. I am ruined, he says. That's what happens when we look at the majestic beauty and kingliness of God. But prayer begins in the balance of that beauty and that kingliness with the fatherly love and mercy and humility and sacrifice of God. It's going to give you a whole new perspective on everything in life. It's like hiking up a mountain. What happens is you hike up a mountain, right? One, every stop you make and you look out, there's beauty and awe. And as you ascend to a new height, you see more beauty. You experience greater awe. And it just bursts your heart into praise when you get to the top, right? But it's a climb. And so the higher you go, the more you see, the lofty, you, sense, uh, you get a sense of the grandness and loftiness and beauty, and it's almost met with the burden of the height that you've climbed. And so on one hand, you're carried away into the power and glory and majesty of God. But that being carried away to that loftiness, there's a danger there because you know who you are. You see who you are. So there's this dangerous sense that you have by the grandness and the power of God, and you feel so small, but then you're captivated by the breeze and the relief and the comfort and the freedom of God's love and his mercy. And so you're moved by the cost that God paid for you, the cost of his love, the cost of his mercy. And that's going to set the table of all the other parts of the Lord's prayer, essentially. And so you continue to be amazed by the power and glory of God, and yet you're comforted and relieved and brought to freedom in the love and the mercy of God our Father. Now, let me bring you guys back down a bit. Think about this. As a parent, as a father, you have the power. You have the power uh, and freedom uh, to do anything for your child to thrive. You would do that. More than your own thriving, you want your children to thrive. Now, let's go back up for a moment. 
think and reflect on the omnipotent Father. He is all-powerful. Jesus has called us to trust him as our Father. That's when you realize that he would do anything for you to thrive in his power. What he wants for you, you'll have. What he wishes for you to thrive, you'll get. God's love for you makes his kingliness and power and glory accessible to you. And his power and his glory and kingliness frees you because of his love. So that's not a burden. That's why some people emphasize the power and love of God all their lives, just the merits of glorifying God forever. Then why do we even need Jesus? And the reason is because, well, first, Jesus provides that access that we need. Without Jesus, how do you know God loves you? Where's the proof that God loves you? You can't even begin to ascend the mountain. You can't even begin to ascend that hike without Jesus. You'd have to work. There's no relief. There's no comfort. You'd have to work to earn that love. Or God's love is so general and so basic, there's no cost to it. It makes his love valueless. It's a very shallow hike. If you want to know what it means to be rich, if you know what it means to be knowledgeable or to be wise, if you, under, if you want to understand a taste of what it means to, to see beauty, you can find some of those things without ever knowing Jesus. If you want to know that God exists, you can know that God exists without Jesus. Psalm chapter 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. You can know that God is there, that God is present, without ever coming to know Jesus. But you won't ever know him personally. You won't ever know him relationally. And there will be no relief or no comfort, no freedom of access. Unless you have a God whose own son comes to earth and dies on the cross, who ascends the great hill, the hill of Calvary, and on the cross pays the penalty of our sins because of his love for God and for us. And so on the cross, Jesus ascends the hill. Jesus ascends the mountain. Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what he's saying there is, I've lost the Father, and now I see his glory. I see his justice. I see his holiness pouring out on me in the form of his wrath. And I'm experiencing the crushing loftiness and weight of his holiness and power without any relief, without any comfort, without every, any freedom. And he says, you've forsaken me. I have no access. Why? So that we would experience the full weight of God's beauty and God's glory and God's holiness in the embrace of his arms, in his love. And we can cry out, our Father. That's why. On the cross, you see the holiness of God fulfilled. Because God is just. God punishes sin. Fathers, mothers out there, if you don't punish sin, what message are you sharing except for the fact that sin can win? What's the extent of God's love? Because the holiness of God was fulfilled on the cross and the love of the Father was fulfilled and satisfied on the cross. Because you see the sacrifice and the cost that Jesus paid for us to save us. What's the extent of God's love? 
What's going to burst your heart out of love to praise God? Ephesians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul answers it. He says, I pray that you may have power to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love, that you may be filled to all measure of the fullness of God. How wide is his love? The psalmist says, as far as the east is from the west. Because you can go east and east and east and east and east for the rest of your life. You'll never meet west. You just keep going east. That's how it goes. That's how far he has removed our transgressions from us. How long is God's love? From Genesis to Revelation, from creation to glory. Jesus stepped out of eternity, and he went to the cross. The infinite has become finite and has died for us. How high is his love? John chapter 17, Jesus prays for his disciples and for all believers. And he says, Father, I want them, that's us, I want them to have the glory that we had before the creation of the world, before sin ever even entered the world. I want our people to have that glory. That's how high he died for that. How deep is his love? Jesus went to the tomb, and he was buried so we could come out of the tomb. Jesus Christ ascended the heights of God's holiness and justice at Gethsemane all the way to the cross for God's glory. And in John chapter 17, he prays, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son that he may glorify you. That means that Jesus went to the cross. That was his glory. Jesus went to the cross to glorify God. That means he was praying. That was his prayer, that your kingdom come, that your glory would sovereignly abide in your people for the glory of God for the mission of God, because what was God's mission? To save his people. Because of his great love for us. That's how you know that God loves his people. You never doubt, it's easy to doubt that God loves you, but you would never doubt that God would love his own son. And yet, where did he send his son? He sent his son to die on the cross for you. That makes you his treasure. That makes you his treasure. You see, Jesus praying for his disciples, praying for all believers. He's praying for you that you would share in his glory. You see that? And to the end, even though he was forsaken by God who was his treasure, Jesus Christ still trusted God. Nothing ever distorted his heart of worship towards God. And when he breathed his last breath, what did he say? Into your hands I commit myself. He trusted to the end. What's going to bring your heart to burst out in adoration, to burst out in praise? What's going to bring you to worship God faithfully, genuinely, even though you go through the fire yourself, only to know that God's own son went through that fire for you, a greater fire for you, suffered hell, separation from God for you, so you would never be separated by God or from God forever. That will bring your heart to adoration. That's going to bring your, we love to praise Jesus. We love to praise God. Why? Because he first loved us. Now, God calls us to worship him because he is our king. But we love to worship him because he's a redeeming king. We love to worship him because he's a loving king. We love to worship him because he's a restoring king. 
And when you see that Jesus, when you see Jesus treasuring you in treasuring God, Jesus will become your treasure. That's worship. My prayer is that that will melt away during your time here at Metro, that, that you treasuring God because of his treasuring you will melt away any distrust that you have, even now. You know, we're going to be responding in song soon. Think about all the ways that you distrust God right now. Let's give them up. That's renewal. You're becoming new again. Let's unleash, break off the shackles that are binding us so we can worship God freely and respond to him because of his love. Let's do that. Let's pray together.